we will be reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So once you've arrived there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I knew Sean wasn't going to stick to the script. He had to. I'm just messing with you, man. I want to welcome you here for your first time. I want to say thanks so much for coming, uh, making us a part of your week. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm glad that you braved the early gathering, okay? So we have, uh, at our late gathering, we're going to have a celebration outside. Hopefully you saw that on your way in. If you did not, you really need some uh, self-awareness and, uh, and uh, might need to go to the doctor, okay? Um, we're also going to be having baptisms uh, in the second gathering to celebrate, and so uh, we're glad that you guys are here. Hopefully... Uh, if you are at the early gathering, maybe you can go home, change, get your kids food, nap, whatever, and then come back. We'd love for you to celebrate with us. Um, but this morning, we are kicking off our series in the book of Philippians, and uh, we're introducing Unwavering Joy, which is a series walking through the book of Philippians, and the tone and theme of the fall for us will be a discussion on the life of, or of joy in the life of the Christian. And so before we jump in, if you will, I'm going to pray for us, and I just want to pray uh, that Jesus would stand forth from the word and make a case for himself that he is our source of joy and that he can, he can lead us and give us the way to joy. Amen? So if you'll bow your head with me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that we are certain that we don't have to come and gather together and fumble around for good ideas or fumble around for best practices or fumble around for truth because your word is truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've promised to be present with us, and you are. And that you will, even when we don't quite understand the truth that we read or hear, you have promised that you would illuminate and open the eyes of our hearts to hear the truth, receive the truth, and apply the truth. And so we do ask that this morning. And finally, Lord, my prayer is that we would leave out of here with greater joy than how we walked in. Help us to do that, Lord, in a way that is not superficial and shallow, in a way that isn't just going to be fleeting and intermittent, but a joy that will sustain us. Let us lean into you, God. We trust you. We love you. 
and, and help me, Lord, to be faithful to your word in all of my uh, feeble frailties. I humble myself and ask for your help, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we talk about joy, there are two uh, primary ways that I think human beings look for joy. And particularly in our culture, we live in a pretty odd culture in the United States. Uh, and so I did a fun experiment, and my fun experiment was to uh, begin to try to find ways to encapsulate with something that's very common and, uh, and we see every day, how we search for joy, not just as human beings, but as human beings in a particular place and in a particular context. For us, that's uh, Southeast Texas, right? Um, and and how, how we search for joy, because I think uh, it would be really uh, easy for me to say, and most of you would agree, that you live your life in a pursuit of some type of joy. It's something we all want. It's why in our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness was a part of that. This is kind of the social experiment of America, that ultimately, have you ever noticed how funny it is that you are guaranteed life, liberty, but you are not guaranteed happiness. You're just guaranteed you can chase after it. But the, even, the, even the, one, the writers of the Declaration knew, we don't know how to get it, but you can chase after it if you want to, right? And we want to give you the right to. That's what we're pursuing. It's what we're chasing. And I think particularly us, but human beings in general, we look for joy in two major ways. One is that we look outward. We look outside of ourselves to the culture, and we allow the culture or the world to tell us the way in which we should pursue joy. It's, it's basically like a big group think, where we look to everyone else and say, how should we pursue joy? And ultimately, there's these these ideas that are created by culture that begin to be promulgated. And then secondarily, we look inwardly. And we look inwardly to ourselves to figure out how we might find joy because we realize there's something broken inside of us. So maybe it's just wholeness inwardly that we need in order to find joy. So what I did in my fun experiment is I went to, I was uh, at Target buying something for my wife. Uh, yes, it was a labor of love. And I'm in line and I looked at the magazine covers. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at the magazine covers when you're in line, but it's something that I always do. You know, like Jonas looks for the candy, and I look at the magazine covers, and I just kind of read what's going on in the world. They're always so weird and odd to me. And so I thought, this is perfect. As I'm reading these magazine covers, I thought, this is a perfect uh, microcosm of our pursuit for joy. So I went home, and I Googled uh, the magazine covers for the month, most popular magazines. You know, what are the covers and the headlines saying this month? And I have a few I want to read to you just because I think that they are hilarious. But also, they give us an idea of the things that we pursue and how we think we're going to get joy. The first one is this. I'm going to start with you ladies because I'm going to pick on you first. Guys, you're coming, okay? Ladies, this one is, I'm not going to tell you what magazine it is. I don't want to trash people. But the headline is this. What you need to eat to have amazing skin. So, implicitly, if you're going to be joyful, you got to have pretty skin, all right? Which that automatically, like, I, kicks me out of the equation. All right, number two. Tw this was funny. 20 weird things that guys secretly worship about you. Okay? So the implicit reality is that if guys just, the word worship is odd, liked you more, then you'd be joyful. So here's the way to get them. They, they really like these things and you don't really even know it. Here's the secrets. Okay. Um, five fixes for a lazy boyfriend. That one I agreed with. <laughs> your life will be more joyful if your boyfriend wasn't lazy. All right. 67 ways to look gorgeous all summer. I, wonder, I wondered with this one, the writer, why 67? You know, like, when did they decide to stop? And when did they decide to keep going on that one? 67 ways to look gorgeous all summer. And then this one, my favorite of the ladies, curb your sugar cravings with this amazing mind trick. 
I need to know what that is. <laughs> Apparently, there's a way that you can trick yourself into not wanting sugar, and this magazine will tell you how to do that. Now, all of these are, in, are, are telling you there's a version of your life that's better if you were to read this and figure these out. Now, men, here's ours. First one, big muscle secrets, supersized in 27 days. So be tough, right? All right. This one was funny. Seven-second metabolism boosters inside, like inside the magazine. How do you boost your metabolism in seven seconds? I need to know. I almost bought that one. Okay, that one is. <laughs> Next one, four rules to building wealth. Oh, so there was like a new one. They're going after the guys with you need to have money. Okay, then Guys and girls, my favorite of any gender, this one was the most funny. It's a, it's a long one, so be careful, all right? Game-changing secrets for, colon, love, money, muscle, golf, work, tennis, poker, hoops, push-ups, fighting, Twitter. My favorite line, and tons of other essential life skills. Okay. Somebody needs to let me know when Twitter became an essential life skill because that one just threw me for a loop. <laughs> Ultimately, all these magazines, though, they have kind of common themes, right? So for women, it's like physical appearance, sexuality, maybe your roles in motherhood or your job. You need to figure out these secrets in order to make your life more joyful. Or guys, physical appearance, sexuality, money, sports was a big one. These are the things that you need to figure out in order to make your life more joyful. And a principle that you can always take to the bank, no pun intended, is that where we spend our money is where we're eventually trying to get joy out of. Now, I, did, I looked up a few statistics here, and I think that the magazine covers, as crazy as they are, they give us a little picture into the life of the average American. For instance, guys, it says that if we just knew more about sports or we were better at sports or more athletic, that we would be more happy. Well, Americans spend over $100 billion a year on sports. That's a big number. So we're chasing it, right? At some level, we're agreeing. Ladies, the magazines would say, if you were more beautiful, if you looked more pretty, if you had these, this perfect skin, you'd be more joyful. And at some level, we laugh at that, and then, we rem then this is a stat that's kind of odd to me, the youngest billionaire in the history of our nation, or at least she's headed there right now, is not who you would guess. Her name's, anybody know? Kylie Jenner. You know why? A makeup empire. Beauty. She tapped into something that we're all, or at least the ladies, are all chasing after, which is beauty. And she's going to be the young, she's going to surpass Mark Zuckerberg, which I imagine most of you are on Facebook because half the world is, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, she's going to pass him as the youngest billionaire ever. Because in the end, as, as funny as those magazine covers are, and as silly as they are, at some level we're buying into that. But then there's a second side. So, so, right, we look outwardly at culture, and we say, okay, what is the culture telling us that we could do to pursue joy? Then we look inwardly. And so sooner or later, whenever the outward starts to depress us or discourage us, we start to ask ourselves, okay, what's happening in here? Let me fix this. And, and that's really just the self-help industry, right? So I, I just picked, really, there's, this was just from an article from the Huffington Post, four principles of self-actualization or self-help, basically saying, listen, here's the four things you need to do to be joyful. Number one, don't compare yourself to anyone else. Number two, learn to accept yourself for who you are. Number three, assert control over your life. You are the captain of your soul. And then lastly, grow every day into a better you. Those were the four points of this article. And you might think that's silly, or, or yeah, some of those are good ideas, some of those are kind of quirky, uh, but listen, 
The self-help industry last year was a $9.9 billion industry, and it is growing by 5.6% every year. So at the end of the day, the proof's in the pudding. It's, it's where we head for joy. Now, I wanted to say, in light of that and where we are putting our finances, how are we doing in this pursuit of joy? Here's a few statistics, and I got most of these from um, what, like, just basic, most reputable sources. There might be like one or two that I actually had to do some digging. Um, 6.7% of the U.S. population has experienced a severe depressive episode in the past year. Now, I could go into what a severe depressive episode is, but I wouldn't want to depress you, so we're trying to talk about joy, all right? 6.7% is a pretty large percent of the population in one year, right? All right. One in seven women, so we're at Providence, we have like baby galore, okay? There's tons of children here. Something's in the water. Um, check this out. Ladies, I just wanted to make you aware of this in case you might potentially be struggling with this. One in seven women experience postpartum depression. One in seven. Like, that's pretty intense, right? One in seven of the ladies of our hundred-something kids that are back there have had a child and then experienced a severe decline in their joy and happiness because of things that were happening chemically outside of their control. That's tough. Okay. America is by a wide margin the most anxious country in the world, according to the World Health Organization's statistics. By, by far. Check this one out. Substance abuse addiction costs the U.S. government $200 billion per year between criminal justice, legal fees, and healthcare costs. 200 billion. There are 21 and a half million Americans, let that number sink in, 21 and a half million Americans over the age, check this age, of 12, that struggle with substance abuse addiction. And the opioid e epidemic has taken thousands of lives annually. 36% of Americans are registered obese, and 49% of Americans admit to overeating due to their stress and anxiety. So a third of us, on, on just like the simple BMI, we, we have eaten too much, and half of us say, yeah, that's how I cope with my stress. When talking about our debt, our consumer debt, meaning we're trying to find joy in the things that we buy, the total pool of consumer debt in America has risen to, check this number out, $1.3 trillion. That's consumer debt. $1.3 trillion. And according to the World Happiness Report, that is a thing, by the way, the World Happiness Report, America is ranked 18th in all the countries with happiness. Now, you might be saying 18th, not too bad. Of all the countries in the world, I'll take it, all right? Here's what I would say. Is 18th in light of our economic advantages, our financial advantages, our societal advantages, our scientific advantages really is tough, isn't it? Because we're supposed to be the world leader in all the things that make us happy. And we're still kind of struggling around the middle with happiness. So what's the rub? What's the rub? Well, Paul tells us that rather than looking outwardly for our joy or looking inwardly for our joy, there's a third way. And the third way is a way that God created us, and that is that we should look upward. That our eyes should look upward to God to find our source, our source of joy. You see, Paul is a man, when he writes the book of Philippians, that is facing deeply difficult circumstances. He's writing this letter to the church at Philippi to encourage them in their joy while he's in prison for preaching the gospel. So Paul writes a letter from a circumstance that you and I would both consider to be maybe the worst of our lives. He's been imprisoned for something wrongfully, and he writes to this church to encourage them. And Paul would tell us in the book of Philippians, there's three major problems with the way that you and I view our pursuit of joy. Number one, we define joy only in relation to our external realities. 
And so, because we do that, we ignore our inner life to our own peril. Many of us define joy only based on what's happening on the outside. If we lost our job, we're no longer joyful. If we're having a tough time argumentatively with our spouse, we consider our joy to be lost. If our children are struggling in school, our joy can be lost. If financially times get tough, our joy can be lost. And Paul says, because we base everything externally, inwardly everything kind of gets ignored. We just kind of say everything that's happening in here really doesn't matter. It's ultimately we need to work for what's happening out there. Number two, because we do that, we are averse, completely averse to the eternal. And so because we ignore our inner life, many times we don't let, allow ourselves to contemplate the transcendent. We don't allow ourselves to contemplate that there might be something bigger than what we see with the naked eye. And here's the problem with that, is the temporal only, only produces temporal. Let me give you an example. Food is something that spoils, right? I would consider that temporal. Even the crazy food like Twinkies that never spoil, all right? That's next level. That's alien food. But the, most food, real food, it spoils. It's temporary, and here's what I can promise you. If you eat it before it spoils, as good as it tastes, you're going to be hungry again because temporal only offers temporal. Only the eternal can offer eternal. But if we are so averse to the eternal, then by and large, we're never going to experience it. And then finally, because of those first two truths, we always look for joy in all the wrong places. And so we chase bubbles that burst. And then rather than sitting back and recollecting and saying, why is it I keep doing this? We just continue on the path of least resistance, which is to chase another bubble, and then another bubble, and then another bubble, and then another bubble. And Paul wants us to stop and pause in the middle of that. You see, Paul had been imprisoned. He's chained to a guard, and he's writing this letter. He says, I would like for you to sit alongside me for a moment and hear what it really looks like to have joy. And I think we can trust Paul, because if a man can be joyful in those circumstances, then maybe we should lean in and hear why. You see, Paul wants to define joy not as something merely external or merely temporal. He wants to dive into our inner life and get to the transcendent. And in light of these things, he wants to show us new areas that perhaps we are unwilling or unknowledgeable about. He wants to show them to us that we might peer in. You see, some of us, we're going to be looking at things that we haven't ever looked at before in this series, and others of us are gonna be looking for joy in areas that we've tried to avoid all of our lives. This morning, Paul starts by giving us an example of where we can find joy in a source that I consider to be a really mixed bag, even in this context. He says we should have joy in the church. Now, I don't know what your church background is, I'm not sure. Um, I say it's a mixed bag because for some of you, the church might conjure up images of different things. For some of you, it might be a place of distrust. For some of you, maybe you've experienced abuse in the church from leaders or from others. For some of you, it may be a place of hope because it's where you've always come for help. It might be a place of relationships. You've grown up and found relationships in the church. For others of you, you might consider the church to be a place of judgment or condemnation. And still for others of you, you might consider it to be a place of mercy and love. For me, my church experience in growing up, when I first had the idea of church, it didn't conjure up for me any of those things. It just kind of conjured up the unknown for me. Church had a mixture of sweetness, because I only went there like once every six years, and they sang songs. There was a mixture of, hey, I kind of like this, and then also 
for the most part, every church that I ever attended was the average age of 86, something like that, and me. And so there was also a level of weirdness for me. Do I belong here? And so when I, someone tells me church, it's mostly unknown when I was a kid. So for Paul to say, hey, you know where you really need to find your joy? It's in church. Mm, not sure if I trust that. But Paul says the church was a source of his deepest joys. And we know this because in all of his writings, Paul writes to either the church or leaders of the church. And in Philippians, when he's in prison, he decides, who do I want to talk to? The church. And he starts with them in his letter about joy. You see, to Paul, the church was a community of people joined together on mission with God, bought by the grace of God, and sealed by the promise of God, growing in the love of God, all to the glory of God. This is Paul's big grand vision of the church. And to him, it was a place where he found his deepest delight. And so this morning, what I'm encouraging you to do is let's lean in and hear, if you're already tuning out, saying, well, That'd be great, but that's not how I experience it. Maybe tune in and figure out why would he say that then? Why would he say that? Number one, and we'll start in verse number three. Paul says, church is a place of joy because the church is a place of purpose. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are a member of the body of Christ, you have purpose. Philippians chapter one, verse number three, Paul says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, For you all making my prayer with, there's your word, joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, Paul says the Philippians are partners with him in the gospel. He's grateful that they've stood by him in his imprisonment, stood by him and defended him in the gospel. You see, the church is a place of common unity because the church is a place of common mission. We're all here this morning because we have a common mission. One of our early presidents, which some consider to be a very good one, Theodore Roosevelt said this quote, far and away the best prize that life has to offer is to work hard at work worth doing. And he was talking about politics. Friends, let me tell you something about being a part of the church. You have work worth doing. And that one of the greatest delights in life is to know that you have eternal purpose in this room with the people that you sit alongside because the work that we are about the business of is eternal work, amen? You see, everyone longs for purpose. I know that to be true. And God created us with purpose. And when we forget, neglect, or reject the purpose that God initially created us for, we struggle with joy. When we're living our whole life trying to search around for why we're even here, Joy is tough to find. But if you wake up in the morning and you know that despite your failures or maybe even despite your successes, you have a purpose that's been given to you by God that cannot be taken away. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter what your marital status is. If your kids are getting the green light in kindergarten, that's a big deal for some of you. I know that, all right? I get it. It doesn't matter if right now you feel like you're on the verge of breaking down in tears, or if you're on the verge of great laughter. You see, the truth about being in the church of the living God is you can look around and say, we lock arms alongside one another with the greatest purpose on the greatest mission that there ever has been, and that that cannot change for you if you are in Christ. And Paul says, I take great delight in you because you're, you're comrades with me. 
You guys have been with me. You've joined with me as soldiers in the gospel. You see, brothers and sisters, we should rejoice because we're in this together. And even though life is hard, pursuing Christ and working for his glory is worthy of sweat and tears. Amen? The church is a community on mission together, and we should rejoice at that. Number two, Paul says the church should be a place of joy because the church is a place of grace. We have grace. I'm gonna start in verse seven on this one. I know I'm skipping over verse six, but I promise I'll get there. Paul says this in verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, this is a major characteristic of the church that we ought to be displaying every chance we get. We are partakers of the grace of God. You see, the church is a place full of broken people who have found their mender. The church is a place full of sick people who have met a great physician. The church is a place of sinful people who have met a gracious savior. Now, if that's true, let me tell you what the church can't be. The church can't be a group or a holy huddle of self-righteous people who look to maintain their sense of righteousness by their own works, acts, strength, or abilities. And when we do such a thing, we reject the very identity that we've been given by God. You see, God simultaneously gives you the identity of saint and sinner for a reason. Saint because he loves you. Sinner to make sure that you're humble and know where your source comes from. We embrace both. See, many decide they want to reject one or the other. So one, you're only a sinner and therefore you, all you talk about is your sin. I think that that's, a, that's an error. But then many of us, we're only saints, and all we talk about is, is who we are in Christ now, and I think that's a grave error as well. Instead, we should simultaneously hold both, because between the two, what's between the two? The grace of God. The only thing that makes these two true is the grace of God. And so as the church, we have joy, because we should look around and say, we have a commonality among us. The commonality is two things. Number one, we're sinners. <laughs> if you walked in and said, not me. I have news. It's not good. I'll get to the good news. I gotta start with the bad. You too. You also walked in though, and prayerfully, if you don't hear it anywhere else, you need to hear this. You're loved by God. And he has done everything that needs to be done that you might become a saint in light of your sin because of his son. And the only thing that bridges that chasm is the grace of God. Brennan Manning says it like this. God loves you and I unconditionally. He loves you as you are and not as you should be. Why? Because no one that lives on the face of the earth is as they should be. He has no, he has no pool to pick from for people that are, that are as they should be. And so God can't love people that are as they should be because they don't exist. They're only people that are not as they should be because sin has broken us. But guess what? God loves us there. That's the gospel. And so, this is important why. Because we need to know how to apply this. I think there's two major ways we can apply this. Number one is I find myself bemoaning the plight of my life at times. Anybody else been there? Right? I find myself going, why would God allow me to go through this? Why would God allow, I'm supposed to be a son. I could tell you if I had time, which I don't, if I had time, I'd tell you many instances where I felt this way. I'm serving Jesus, I'm planting a church, I'm pastoring people, I'm loving people, I'm praying with them, caring for them, why is this my route? Paul says, that oftentimes I do this because I've lost sight of the most outrageous thing that I should be most scandalized by, and that is I should be saying, why in the world does God love someone like me? 
Why in the world am I a partaker of grace? How crazy it is that he loves me. That's what you should be in awe about. We shouldn't bemoan our plight. We should look and say, how in the world could someone like me be given all of this? And that's how perspective changes when the gospel lands on our hearts. So this morning, we should look and say, how, is, how awesome it is that he's chosen us as kids. How gracious he is that we're partakers in that grace. Because I'll promise you this, my friends, if you thought that you walked in here deserving, we aren't. But he loves us all the more. Secondarily, isn't it a beautiful thing and I want to help maybe some of you that might, might have some of those fears about church, that when you walked in there this morning, you might not know this, but you do not have to pretend, hide, or promote yourself. Why? You do not have to pretend that you are someone that you are not because Christ accepts you as you are, died for you as you are, and is making you into his image. Number two, you don't have to hide who you are because Christ loves you as you are died for you and is making you in his image and lastly you don't have to promote or pretend to be a version of yourself that you think is more likable why because christ died for you loved you as you are and is making you into the image of Jesus. isn't there freedom in that like you don't have to come in and say the right thing or amen at the right time or raise your hands right at the chorus you don't have to get that right. Your kids don't have to come in and be, and be perfect when they run off and they go and they bite their, their sister on the ankle, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, you look around to see. You get to be who you are because Christ has loved you there and loves you there. Number three, Paul says we should have great joy in the church because the church is a community that has been given eternity, eternal life. Now we'll go back to verse number six, Philippians verse number six. This is a life verse. Many of you might be very familiar with it. Paul says this to the Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ and you are a member of the body of Christ, the church, you are sealed with a promise from God that he will complete the work that he began in you. Ephesians chapter number one, verse number 14 tells us that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, the good news about the joy that we find in the body of Christ is you're amongst people who don't have to spend their life guessing what comes after. And, and, and think about how this should change your life. You don't have to be so wrapped up in how your life turns out on this side because what happens on the other side is certain. Isn't there peace there? You don't have to be so wrapped up to make sure that every single domino falls with your kids and you and your money and your, as you want it to on this side of things because you know where you're headed. And that's certain. So you can be open-handed with this life because you know where you're going. It's for sure. There, there is no fear of the unknown on the other side for the person that is in Christ. And therefore, the church should be the most joyful group of people that there is. Because in the midst of difficulty, suffering, and hardship, which, friends, let, 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 me, let me, you need to hear this, you will experience, you will experience those things, and in the midst of it, you'll know that no matter what's happening here, that's for sure. And what a joyful thing that is. You see, when you look around at the faces this morning, at one another's, in one another's eyes, you can say with certainty and conclude, anyone in this room who calls upon the name of the Lord with a sincere heart 
can and will be eternally restored to fellowship with God. That's a great thing. And that should bring great joy. And Paul, as he sits in prison, he's reflecting on this. And he's not just thinking about his own salvation, he's thinking about the Philippians. There's joy in that, isn't there? Because here's the thing, if, you're, if maybe you're a loner in the room, I, I have uh, tough news for you. When you get to heaven, it's not just gonna be you, you know? Like riding a tandem bike alone. That's not gonna be you. You're not gonna be like playing ping pong against the wall like Forrest Gump. There's gonna be a group of people there, the bride of Christ, who have also been rescued, saved, redeemed, and restored by him. And there'll be a great celebration that we're there together. Number four, Paul says this, the church is a place of joy because we together grow in love. We grow in love. In verses eight through 11, Paul says this, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, Paul uses this word yearning to describe his emotions toward the Philippian church because he loves them so much. And his love for them has led him to pray for them. And Paul is unlike us because he doesn't just look at us in church and say, I'll pray for you, brother. He then tells you, he's, he's like one of our elders, Butch Holmes, where he says, I'll pray for you right now. And he begins to say, not only am I gonna pray for you, I'm gonna pray for you with my pen. And he starts to tell you what he's gonna pray about. Paul's prayer for the Philippians is this, I want your love to abound more and more and more and that your love for God and that your love for each other would begin to produce a fruit in your life and that you would continually and regularly look more to Jesus and so as you look more to Jesus, you would look more like Jesus. The fruit of righteousness would begin to bear forth in your life. As a staff this fall, this last week, we talked about the, the details and the rules of a staff fitness challenge that we're gonna do. And so uh, we're a group of guys on executive staff, so there's a bunch of testosterone flowing. We're trying to beat each other on this uh, challenge. And the goal, like everybody has different goals and habits we're trying to do, but ultimately there's, a, there's an end date where we're gonna compete. And I don't know if you've ever done this, like in a new year or something, but when you first start like a challenge like this, whether it be a diet or eating right or, uh, or working out, I always typically wanna get on the scale or look at myself in the mirror to see changes. Anybody else wanna do that? Most frustrating thing first week, isn't it? It's like it's the first week when you're sick, you almost have like a flu, you've, eat, you've eaten next to nothing, you know, lunch was an ice cube and a tea leaf. You look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, nothing has changed. In fact, it's worse. It's like you're pale and, uh, you know, you look sick. But then over time, if you're consistent, you start to see changes. You look at yourself, things start to change in your way, your, your appearance you put on that pair of jeans or whatever, I don't know, ladies, whatever the heck you put on, all right? And you put that stuff on and it starts to fit differently. You're like, oh yeah. And it encourages you. But I'll tell you, the number one thing that encourages you is when you show up to church or you show up to the grocery store, you show up to a party and one of your friends says, girl, you're looking good. You're like, yes, I am. <laughs> you don't say that, right? You're like humble. You're like, oh no, I'm just, I'm just nothing. You know, I don't look good at all. You are beautiful. You know, you deflect. But deep down, that's encouraging, isn't it? Because all of us, we desire to change. We have that longing to change. We want things to be different about us. And here's the good news about being a part of the body of Christ. In the church, God has committed himself to you changing more and more into his image and likeness. Jesus will convict, comfort, challenge, and give gifts to the church so that they will look more like him. He is committed to it. Paul knows this as he prays for God to do the work that only God can do and that we would join him in this work. And over time, what starts to happen is 
we look at ourselves in the proverbial mirror and we start to notice growth, but there's a key element to joy here that I think that many of us miss, and that is this. Do we take the time to look for the good and growth of others and vocalize our joy by encouraging them? When you see each other, do you look at each other and say, I see you growing in Jesus, and I wanna tell you that. I see Christ in you and how you handled that. I saw that there was an extra spot on the meal train and you had already picked up a night, but you picked up a second one because you did not want there to be an empty spot. I see Christ in that. I see that you saw someone had bailed out at the last minute from home group because their kid got sick and they couldn't bring this food and you said, don't worry because I'll pick up double. I saw that. I saw Christ in that. Do we look for that? Parents, look at me right in my eyes. Do you do that with your kids? Do you look right in the eyes of your children and say, I see Jesus being formed in you. I see what's happening in your heart. Speak life into them and encourage them. Because in the same way that it encourages you most when someone actually recognizes what's happening in your changes, the same is true of your neighbor. And Paul says, the reason the church is full of joy is because we're meant to be a constant interaction of this kind of encouragement. That we look to one another not to deprecate and not to be self-deprecating, but to encourage so that we might be mutually encouraged in Christ, amen? It's a place of joy. And then lastly, and I'll close with this, the church is a place of joy because we have Jesus. Paul always ends with these prepositional phrases that are culminating in his letters. Some of you are like, prepositional, you lost me. All right, I'm out of high school now. This is the one he uses here, and he uses this often. He says, all of this is through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All of the good things that I just said about the church is true through Jesus Christ. It's the only reason those things are true. It's the only reason that we have the grace that's been offered to us. The only reason we have eternity in our hands. The only reason that we are growing in love is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He says in John 14, Jesus tells us, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There is no other way except for through me. Jesus narrows the way to joy and says you can only come to, through me to find your deepest joy and satisfaction. Now, I know many of us think that's so exclusive, it's wrong. Why would Jesus do that? That's so mean of him to exclude all the other ways of joy. And I want to tell you, is it mean or wrong when a house is on fire and the family's inside that house and it's dark and smoky and they're just fumbling their way for an exit for the firemen to kick open the only door and say, come through here to save your life? Does anyone say, gosh, that's so rude. There's a back door on fire. You're glad the fireman comes in, kicks the door in. You know, sometimes the fireman's carrying people out the front door and we're critiquing his form. I mean, why did he do it that way? Thanks be to God, Jesus said, the truth as the fire is raging on and didn't try to placate to our own moral sensibilities and say, well, I guess you could technically try another way. No. He said, listen, friends, as the fire rages on, come through this door. I am the door. There's joy here. Friends, Jesus is with you, and if you aren't a believer this morning, the love of God is reaching out to you through the reminder of Jesus on the cross for your sins. You don't have to guess God's disposition towards you this morning. Isn't that a great thing? You don't have to guess if he's happy or mad or frustrated based on your performance. Instead, you can know that God's disposition towards you is love because you can look at the cross. If you're ever gonna hear that anywhere, somewhere, I would pray you'd hear it at the church. 
that God's disposition towards you is love. Secondarily, there's an invitation implicit in Paul's prepositional phrase here. When he says that everything is through Jesus Christ to the glory of God, he's offering you a different way to a life of joy. He says this, if you live your life, all of your life, to the glory of yourself, your joy will always be fleeting and intermittent because you're always gonna be jumping from successful event to unsuccessful event to successful event, trying your best to, go, to bask in the human glory that you can gain. Or you can live your life to the glory of God and every moment can be full of joy. Even your failures can be full of joy and here's why. Because this morning you can find joy even in your suffering because you can still glorify God and bask in the glory of God through suffering. You can find joy in your sickness because you can both glorify God as a sick person and bask in the glory of God as a sick person. You can find joy in your failures. You can find joy in your good and your bad because no matter your circumstances, you can both glorify God and bask in his glory. And so Paul finishes the stanza with to the glory of God because the church is meant to be a place and a people that are committed to spurring each other on every single day to live our lives to the glory of God. Why, because we're religious? No, because there's no other way to have joy. <laughs> That's why, there's no other way. In conclusion, I think that one of the things, the, the major things that keeps us from joy is fear. Some of us, something that keeps you, from, keeps you from joy is that you're afraid that you just won't matter in the end, that your life won't matter, and that the things that you're doing won't matter. The church is meant to be a place that encourages you. God has purpose in your life, for your life. Many of us are afraid that we're just not enough, that in our best days, we're just not enough to, to do what we need to do. And the church is a place to be encouraged that the grace of God is enough. Many of us are afraid of the unknown. We don't know what's gonna happen to us after this life. We don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And that's, that's a real sexy way to say, oh, well, I like that, I like the mystery, until you're facing the unknown. Until the unknown is a days away versus years away, and then it's no longer sexy, it's scary. But Jesus tells us you don't have to be afraid of the unknown because I've made it known. You can be secure. And finally, many of us are afraid that we'll never change. We're afraid that who we are right now is who we're gonna be for the rest of our lives. And Jesus says, it is not so, you are my child. And I am more committed to your growth and you changing than you could ever be. And that is great news for us, amen? And so I hope that you look around this morning and even if you didn't come in here this way, that you can say like David said in the Psalms, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I pray you can say that and mean it. Because if you're a believer in this room, I'm gonna invite you to take the Lord's Supper and it is a delightful meal to partake in, amen? The broken body and blood of Jesus reminds me that he did that so that my body would not have to be broken and I would not have to shed my blood. If you're not a believer in this room, I have even better news for you is that before I invite you to the dinner table of God, I wanna invite you to the family of God. And there is really one step and one step alone and it is this, place your trust and faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Here's the thing, you're a sinner in need of grace. That's the bad news, but I gotta tell you, take heart, you're in good company, look around. Even, I know it's, I know it's shocking, me. <laughs> That's a joke. 
But not only are you a sinner in need of grace, you are more loved than you could ever know. And I know this because of what Christ was willing to do, not just for me, but for you. And so if you do not know Jesus this morning or do not trust him and treasure him, there's gonna be a prayer of belief on the screen. We have prayer volunteers that would love to pray for you. Not just, not just non-believer, but believer as well. There's tables on both sides because obviously you don't wanna take a swim before you go to communion table, okay? So here on both of these sides is gonna be communion. And if you stand to your feet, I would love to pray for us. <laughs> Father, what a joyful thing it is to be in the presence of your children, to be with the family of God today, to open the word of God today, to celebrate the truth of God today. Thank you, Lord. That it's not based on my performance, it's not based on what I have done, what I will do, that in my feeble brokenness you are more than willing. To do what I can't do on my own. God, bring joy this morning. Holy Spirit, lead us to you. For those of us who would walk by the communion table and by a prayer partner, when we know we need prayer, would we stop? For those of us who would have the unction to not cry out to you out of fear, would we cry out? Because your word says that we will not be put to shame if we call upon your name. We will not be outcasted if we come to you. So God, we do. We and as we take up your table, we do so humbly with gratitude in our hearts. There is no other name under heaven by which we could be saved. Thank you that you offered it. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can come and take it.